Hi everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here to talk about being invested. This is the Invested Podcast. Being invested in your life and your money and having enough money to do what you want in your life. And doing it so that you learn enough about investing that you can invest the way Warren Buffett does, which is to focus and hopefully achieve the fantastic rule of not losing money. That's the ideal. Yes, we don't want to lose money. I don't want to lose money. Because if you think about it, if you knew that you weren't going to lose any money on your investments, you know you might not make money on them, but at least, you know, on the ones you did badly on, you wouldn't lose any money. And on the ones you did well on, you might do well enough that you could have a fabulous rate of return, far bigger than you'd be getting in mutual funds, which well, is actually sounds, Buffett's experience. That sounds fantastic. It does. <laughs> I mean, I, this was amazing. Charlie Munger said this once. Munger, of course, is Warren Buffett's partner. And he said, you know, you look at our results over 60 years and it gets down to about 10 or 15 businesses that we really got right. 10 or 15. That's what he said, 10 or 15. Yeah, in 60 years that they got right. That really and how made... many did they get wrong? That's the question. Well, here's the, 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 the answer is it doesn't matter if they didn't lose a lot of money on those. Well, I understand that. Like at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. But I'd be curious how much time they spent on companies they thought were going to do well that didn't. Well, the classic story of Buffett is that his company is Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and the reason it's Berkshire Hathaway is because in the 1960s, he made a serious investment into this textile company in the Northeast called Berkshire Hathaway because it had a lot of cash flow and it seemed really cheap. Mm -hmm. But he did it at exactly the wrong time, just as Europe and China and Asia were coming out with more and more textile firms to compete with the high cost Northeast American textile firms. Hmm. And over the next 20 years, they put the textile firms in America out of business. See, that's what I mean about this investing thing is like, you can get it right and still get it wrong. But the whole that's, idea... that's the scary part. Exactly, which is why Buffett says that there's only two rules of investing. Rule number one, don't lose money. And rule number two, don't forget rule number one. And what he means by that is you focus on the downside. You're focusing on understanding the business well enough that you can come up with a reasonable long-term value of the business. Like if I stay in this, this is going to be worth $10 eventually, right? And then you buy it for five. So if you understand the value and you, and you focus on getting a good margin of safety, waiting patiently until you get a really good price on this business, then the times when you get it wrong, meaning that it really wasn't worth $10. It was worth less than that because the textile industry is going out of business. Even those times, you're going to come out okay. You're going to get your money out of there. Like maybe you just break even. Yeah, that's the idea. At least you can break even and you exit. Okay? So that's how Berkshire Hathaway ended up being Warren Buffett's company that he now uses as his investment vehicle is that he bought this, what turned out to be a failing textile company, and when he realized it was failing, instead of just selling it and getting out of there, which he could have done and, and broken even because he bought it so cheap, he decided he would turn it into his investment vehicle. And so he ended up just buying all the stock. Hmm. But the key thing is that Charlie's saying that you and I, who are not Charlie and Warren, no. right? we're not exactly that smart. Those guys have made the majority of their investments 
were mistakes in effect, right? They're, they're, well, that's what I would like to know. I'd li- I don't know. Are there stats out there on that? Well, they, they own a lot of private companies. They bought a lot of private companies because often you can get them cheaper than you can get public companies. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd be, it'd but be there's in the certainly reports, a, wouldn't it? Yeah, and there's certainly a lot of companies that they've gotten into, and then Warren, Warren is very, very honest in his annual report. And by the way, you guys, if you want to read an annual report written by a guy who writes them the way they should be written by all companies, um, read Berkshire Hathaway annual reports. Um, and all you have to do really is just go online to berkshirehathaway.com and you'll see the first thing that comes up is the thing everybody wants, which is to read Buffett's letters every year. Hmm. And he just wrote one uh, last week. Um, Definitely online, go read it. And it's full of wisdom about how to invest. It's full of all the things we're teaching you because we've learned them from Buffett. And and plus you get his view of how he's doing. And you're going to hear him say, you know, I was a bonehead about this and I made this mistake and I screwed that up. And if I was any smarter, you guys would be making more money. And, you know... I love it. I mean, he's so humble about his the limits of his abilities. And so from that, the first thing we have to understand is we're not going to get all of them right. We're not even going to get most of them right. But if we get some of them right and we don't lose money on the rest of them, we're going to make a lot of money. And that's been my experience. That, that is the key thing is to be sure that you go in with a big margin of safety, as Charlie says, because of the vicissitudes of life. That is, <laughs> there's stuff going to happen that you didn't foresee, no matter how smart you are. Right? Yeah. I don't yeah. think Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger called the 2007-2008 meltdown in real estate. They, they, didn't, they didn't call that. They reacted to it, but they didn't see it coming necessarily. Um, I would say this, Warren, of all the people in the country that I've read over a long period of time, at least was throwing up red flags in 2002, 2003, saying this derivatives market that we've created around real estate bonds is going to blow up in our face. Hmm. But he didn't know when, right? Was he seeing, was he saying anything about the excessive number of mortgages that were being awarded to people who really did not have the backing to actually get them? No. And as a matter of fact, he came out and bought a uh, mobile home company hmm. um, after after 2009, you know, when it was in the tank. And also companies that provide, you know, he's got, he owns a company that provides carpet for homes. And, you know, he owns companies in the real estate, but he went out and bought one of the biggest real estate agencies and, um, and now owns it. And they've turned it into Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate. Oh. I've seen signs for that. So he stepped in. That was a weird, weird well, little side business. It's it's like he can step in to markets where he's got a margin of safety, hmm. and it might not turn out fantastic. Most investments don't turn out fantastic, but if they turn out at zero or better, you're not losing uh, your working capital, right? As an investor, the money you're working with to grow. And that's why we're focused so much on understanding the business. Over and over and over again, we're talking about Charlie's number one thing, number one principle that he follows is to be sure you're capable of understanding the business. And Munger has said over and over again that what makes he and Warren special is that they know what they don't know. And that is hard to do, right? It's really hard to know what you don't know. I would say it's impossible to do, frankly. There's no way to know what you don't know. The only way to find out is to have somebody else who knows what you don't know 
to tell you what you don't know. Well, you I don't agree at all. I think you can immediately know you don't know. For example, do you know how to skydive out of an airplane? No. Okay. But I did but I did go. not I did not know that I did not know that until just now when you pointed out that I do not know that. <laughs> Therefore, what I said is exactly accurate. Okay. In that case, you always look at a business and say, do I understand this business? Am I capable of understanding it? In other words, does this fall into that circle of things that I know I know, or is it in that area? And in that moment, it occurs to you, oh, I have never in my entire life thought about the carpet business. Right. Ever. Right. And now I have the question in my mind, is this something I'm capable of understanding? Oh, that is so awesome. You just said it like that. No, I'm saying I'm making my own point, which yes. is that you have to have the thought come into your mind before you can know what you don't know. Well, I always think that you should have the thought yeah. come into your mind. It's pretty important. It is, because otherwise, silence. <laughs> <laughs> and then, as you know, but, I th- you're but making, that's fantastic you're because then you're meditating. Light. You're making light, but what I'm saying is real. A lot of us simply don't do things because we literally don't think about them. They literally do not occur to us until somebody else or something points it out. That happens in our lives over and over and over and over. I mean, something you and I have talked about is like people going to college. Like I thought of going to college because somebody put that in my mind. And there's an awful lot of people out there who just don't have that put in their mind. Like it's not something that's in their realm of possibilities simply because the thought and the expectation is not there. And then other people, the thought and the expectation, since they were little, is clearly you go to the top college or you failed in your life. You know, so there's a whole range of thoughts that are put in your mind without you even realizing it sometimes. Well, this is, And you don't notice it until you grow up and you're like, oh, now I know about college or I know about carpet companies or I know about starting a company or I know about investing. Those thoughts literally never occurred to me until this thing happened that told me about it. I completely understand that. I mean, it's it's like when you start something new, the most uncommon thing is common sense about it. Like we see that with horses all the time. And we're very aware here on our farm about safety for people who are coming in here. And we see it with horses all the time. If we One of our guys comes to work for us who's really good. This with, is you and Melissa's farm. Yeah. And... and um, a guy will come to work and he's really good at the mechanical side of things. He knows tractors, he knows you know the mowers and all that, um, but he doesn't have any experience with horses. And so we take a lot of care because we've come to realize that common sense, what we would consider to be common sense, yeah. Well, around that's horses, the difference, right? Is it's you consider it right? Exactly. I mean, I knew I knew a lot about horses. I've had horses for years, and and yet. You know, when I got out here with Melissa, she had horses for her whole life and worked closely with them. And you would think I would have common sense. I mean, I own horses. I rode horses for many, 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 many years. I team, you know, I team pinned out in Wyoming and, you know, did rodeo, did, you know, the the easy rodeo stuff. And she had to be, she had to show me carefully the things that were just common sense to her. Well, this is like, you don't know what you know. You don't know what you, you just don't know. It's just in. I mean, we all. But you have to. We think all about live it. in our own heads. Yeah. You know, like 
it's so I don't know what's in your head and this unless is, you tell me. By the way, exactly the same thing will get you killed by a horse that'll get you killed investing is doing something <laughs> that you thought you knew that you didn't know. Right? I mean, you see people get kicked by a horse because they want to run up and jump up on the back of the horse like they're, you know, you know, the the lone ranger or something. And and the horse sees them coming out the side of their head and just kicks them. It's because they didn't think, they watched stuff on TV where the Lone Ranger could jump up on the back of a horse. Oh, I've never seen that. The yeah, Lone yeah. Ranger jumps from the back. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He just comes running, running. He's and a very good jumps jumper. up on the back of his horse and then he yells, Hi-O Silver. Because Silver is his horse. <laughs> Hi-O Silver. I'm not sure what the Hi-O part is. I think it's like, let's go or something. Does Silver go? Silver goes out of town like a shot, <laughs> like a silver bullet. Oh, yeah, I grew up on the Lone Ranger. So and, the Lone Ranger's been and, working on his high jump onto the horse. Yeah, he just comes barreling down the road and leaps up into the air. His vertical is amazing. His vertical is amazing because he's wearing, you know, some kind of stretchy outfit. Sure, you know, as you do. Single color. In the West. In the West. When you're in black and white television, you just yeah. wear the single color outfit. Spandex everywhere. It That's looked right. like a little bit like a leisure suit in <laughs> Palm Springs. <laughs> But he would jump up on the back of his horse and off he would go. And then, so you, you, your common sense is not yet tuned enough to know that you're outside your circle of competence to run up and jump on the back of a horse. And then you get kicked. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'd call that common sense. It would be I would call that like situational information. Okay. Very good. <laughs> well, here's the thing in investing that you have to realize is that you've got to be pretty humble about what you know. That's, I think, the whole point that Charlie is saying. You got two guys who are both geniuses who've been working together for 60 years who believe that they've drawn a pretty firm line around their circle uh, and their circle and they try to stay within it. And of course, the mistakes happen when you step outside that a little bit. Yeah, I think I've been thinking about this a lot as I've been thinking about how to get myself into this investing thing. Mm -hmm. Because every time you say we... It does not mean me. <laughs> it means your rule one sort of... My, my crew. Your crew. My posse. Yeah. And, um, and so I've been thinking, like, how do I make this work for me? And something that I think is going to make it work in a, in a big way is staying... Coming at it from that position of a student really strongly, though. Like... That's obvious in the beginning that you're a student, but then as you get better at something, it's really easy to start thinking that you really know a lot. There you go. And that's where the you don't know what you don't know thing comes in because you start thinking you know stuff mm -hmm. and then you make an expensive mistake. Mm -hmm. And I don't have enough money to make an expensive mistake, mm -hmm. honestly. Like, I can't afford to have some big downturn right. and get caught in it. Right. So... What I've been thinking about by, is... By the way, you're not alone. I mean, even people with a lot of money, maybe more so, people with a lot of money can't afford to make that big mistake. It's Well, that's true because they're probably investing the same percentages that exactly. I would invest. So it doesn't really matter what the actual dollar figure is. It's more like... I mean, believe me, if, if you lost $10,000, you could recover from that in a period of time. On the other hand, if you had $10 million and lost, or $30 million and lost $10 million of it, that would be devastating. It would be such a shock. Yeah, you might have to sell your private jet. <laughs> oh. I just realized maybe that Feeling number's a little bit too That number's a little too big. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said if you had a million dollars in lost. You might have to like sell some of your polo ponies. <laughs> I mean, 
guys, can we just have a moment? Can we just have a moment of silence? You're right. You're right. There's a point at which that sort of becomes not a good example. <laughs> Fair enough. Lesson learned. No, but I take your point that, that for somebody who is investing 10000 and loses it, like, okay, you get it back maybe, hopefully, you know, a few years, depending on how long it takes you to save it. But somebody who's got... I don't know, a million dollars that they've saved over 30 years. And they're retired. And, they, and they're retired and they lose 800,000 of that million. That's a massive life change that yeah. means they have to go back to work. Yeah, that's huge. That's so huge. How, how do we prevent that? Well, we stay within our circle and we start building that circle. We call it the canyon because I can think of building a canyon easier. Like you're digging a canyon as you canyon. get started. And you're going to keep it, as we tell everybody, we're going to keep it an inch wide and you go a mile deep. And that inch wide is really, we take that real seriously. You want to just get deep into one thing and then start to expand it a little bit over time. So that yeah, you, and we still have not really discussed canyons. Like yeah, we'll you, get you into mention that it, soon. You mentioned a lot. We, we need to get into it because yeah. I have a lot of questions about. Yeah, it. but I want to come back to this thing about about you know knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know, and not having had anyone in your life like. I'm the first person in our family that went to college. So on your side. Yeah, yeah. on my side and like on on your mom's side, you know, she had her mom go to college way back in the she, 30s, yeah, which is she amazing. Worked insanely hard as a maid at night to get so to that college. she could go to teachers college during the day. I mean, it was like amazing. She by the amazing. way, by the way, let me tell you something incredible that has happened here over over this 60-70 year period of time is that Back when she was, when your grandmother was like a young girl, young woman, she could work as a maid, work really hard, and pay for college. Yeah, that's true. You can't do that that's today. Yeah. And the reason you can't do that today, I mean, college hasn't changed. It's still professors. It's still universities. All of that's the same. But what's changed is back in her day, she couldn't get her hands on loans very easily. And now it's I become, doubt there were any educational I don't think there were. back then. I mean, going to college was very rare. It was only wealthy people that went to college. Well, no, because no? your mom worked her way through college. She could do it. Grandma. Your grandmother did. Yeah, but she went to to teacher's college. I don't know if it was like, a, I don't think it was a four-year. I would, I would argue that she went to teacher's college because that's as much as she could think about. I think that's which true. Which is the point. Well, we're because she here. was a single woman yeah. in the 30s? Yeah, in the probably? 30s. Yeah. And it was very rare for women to work at all, and anyone who did was a teacher. Yeah, agreed, agreed. There were severe boundaries there, but I'm gonna I'm gonna stipulate that the cost was about the same in other places as well. It's just she couldn't think of becoming an Maybe. engineer. It wasn't. Part yeah, of no, the, no, no. The, well, it wouldn't have been socially acceptable. Right, exactly. So here, there's there's lots of points about that. Just let me take a brief aside and say that just have to be thinking. What caused this dramatic rise in the cost of college over all of these years? Um, and it wasn't the cost of living. The cost of li like when I went to school, if it cost me a thousand dollars back in the seventies to go to school, um, today that costs something by the standard of living increases. That today would cost four thousand. Okay, by cost of living increases, it would have from doubled the twice 70s. from the seventies to today. Okay, but it hasn't doubled twice. It's gone from one thousand to sixteen thousand. Yeah. It doubled a couple more times. And that's only because more and more money was chasing a single amount of supply. And so you end up with the government providing, you know, in an attempt to be fair and, and 
have more and more people get an education, which we want as, as a country, the government provided the capital. And what happened is when you have all this capital available, the schools just kept raising their prices because the kids would pay it. Right. Well, uh, yes, I mostly agree, except that I don't think it was just the schools just keep raising their prices. The schools have become these like amazing four year places to go where you like play sports and you join clubs and you live in beautiful dorms and you have pools and Very cool. beautiful so, grounds so and they've increased the, the best the professors. Pool. So what you're getting yeah. is so much more than what you used to get. Yeah. And they have they have to pay for it. I mean, most universe most universities are not for profit universities. Right. They're not accumulating money. Right. Good point. So it's not that they're just raising their prices to make a profit. Now there are for profit universities, which is a whole other issue and situation. But but most of the ones we're talking about are not. Okay. So we went aside there a minute just to say be thinking about you know how do we solve this problem, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's come back because the the big point that I I think you've made here is that. It's very difficult to think of a thing you can't think of. Exactly. And I would if you're, say if you're, it's impossible. It's impossible. That was what I said originally. Exactly. And I think you have to have some outside influence, whether it's a person or seeing something. Just I mean, some I mean, sort look, of at, look at the evolution of our family. Okay, as an example, my parents, not, neither of them went to, went to college. And yet they taught me that I should go to college. So I had it in my head that I had to go to college. Okay. And so I just went to a college. I went to like Washington State and then I didn't do well. And then I went to University of Washington and then I failed. And then I went to Bellevue Community College, which I flunked out of. Then I went to the Army. Then I came back and went to College of Marin. Again, just a community college that costs a dollar a semester or something. It was awesome. <laughs> and then I went to... Because of the GI Bill? Yeah. No, because of... Uh, California has this amazing community college thing. They do, yeah, have amazing yeah. community colleges there. Yeah, which are stunningly good. The best education I got, the best teachers I got were at that community college in Marin. They were, they were. I hate to say it, but they were better at teaching. I'm sure they weren't as smart, and I'm sure they didn't write as many papers, but they were better at teaching me than the professors at the University of California I went to in San Diego. Hmm. So I, I got to tell you, you know, it's an awesome thing. And I went there and, you know, just tried to learn. And then I went to the University of California, San Diego. And, it, and I, and I, so I went in a lot of colleges. But when I started off at 18 to think about where to go, it never occurred to me that I could go to a really good college. That was way out of my... I mean... Did you know anybody who went I, to like no, a top college? No, didn't know anybody. Oh, yeah. A guy following me, I heard later, a kid I played football with... Um, went to Stanford, and it was see, like, and that's interesting because it's something that was like talked about. You heard yeah, later. I heard later. It was yeah. like whoa. Yeah. And it was it was so unimaginable when I heard it. I was nineteen, right, and wallowing in in college, and I would just I couldn't even think about it. It was like you might as well have said, well, Jim went to Pluto. Yeah. <laughs> for a big, <laughs> it's like Pluto. Yeah. Whoa. Like that's, that's probably hard to get cool. to. Cool. Good for him. Yeah. Good for him. <laughs> and it doesn't mean anything. And and so from all this, the reason we're, we're I think we should talk about this is because if you're broke and your family's never had any money, then the the thought of how to go about it exactly remains this vague notion. Somebody can tell you till the cows come home that you should go to Stanford, but it's just like saying you should go to Pluto. Exactly. That's exactly right. So. Yeah, that's important. And that's something 
to get back to what I was saying, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Like, how do I make this investing thing work for me as somebody who grew up with you telling me about investing? And yet, yet. it bounced off my skull and went back the other way and did not make it in. So even when somebody tells you something, it doesn't mean it's actually going to occur to you that it's possible. Because what I know about myself is that I'm not great at math. Numbers swim in front of me. That's not my forte. I like words and writing and thinking about logic. And that's why I went to law school. So the whole like world of finance and numbers was just, in my mind, always closed to me. And We've been doing this podcast almost a year now, and by the way, good job. <laughs> and, Me too. And um, and I think it, you know it's taken this long for me to really start thinking. Oh, okay, maybe, and I'm still not convinced, but maybe it's possible. And that's something you know when we were doing the numbers last time. I, I was thinking about can I really do this? I think I can. This seems to work. I think I could learn it and remember it and figure it out and make it work for me. So, long soliloquy coming to an end soon, I promise. What I've been thinking about is how to keep that attitude of a student because I know that I'm in danger of feeling that I understand more than I actually understand. And from that perspective, I think if I can make this into like, as I've been saying a lot, into a practice where you stay a student. And it's really important to your practice that you stay a student because you have to continue to learn. That's what a practice is. Continually coming at it from a, what's next? What am I learning today? I've got to keep going with this every day because otherwise I'm going to lose my skills. Like continually just hammering away at it step by step, knowing that you're never going to be a master. Even the master is never a master, right? Well, that, that's absolutely right. And, and a master is often someone who realizes that the more they learn, the less they know. Right. You know? And I think, I feel that way. I've been at this over 30 years, and I, and I feel that by, you know, one of the reasons I enjoy our podcast and teaching and writing about this is that I learn, I get deeper yeah, I've into seen it. You, I've seen you do that. Yeah. And it makes you my investing better yeah. over time. But here's, here's what I wanted to kind of communicate about this idea that you can't know what you can't know if your family isn't there teaching you, and even if they are teaching you, you, you know, if they don't teach you enough, you just bounces off and, and it goes on. And so, you know, my family said, go to college and I got that much. Right. Yeah. And I went even after I got back from Vietnam, I was like, okay, I'm going to college. I probably couldn't have told you why, except they drilled it into me. And so then we drilled it into you. Yeah. But to go to a good college. Yeah. And so you went to some of the best universities in the, in the nation. I mean, you've gone to Wellesley, Oxford in England, NYU Law. I mean, these are some of the best universities there are. And University so, of Colorado. University of Colorado, forget. which is awesome. And, and so um, you apparently felt that that was within your, your ability. You could handle that. Yes, and frankly, I remember very consciously feeling that if I did not go to a good college when I was in high school, that I had failed. Wow, we got a little heavy on you there, maybe. No, I don't think it. <laughs> no, but like I, you know, like that's that's the other side of that. I remember when you got the. I remember you know? when we went to the post office and you got the the oh my God, letter I from Wellesley. Fainted. Oh, I thought you were gonna throw up. <laughs> 
I mean, it was the, the most opposite reaction to good news that I've ever seen. I thought I was so relieved. Oh my god! Because I really wanted to go there. Oh man, you, you really and had I that remember, buried deep. But it's the same. It's that feeling of like my sister said that to me too when like she got into college. She was just and I can't remember which school she got into first, but it was she just said, "Now I know I can go." Yeah, I think it was Northwestern that popped first. I don't know. And then she ended up with Cornell. But, like, that's the that's the feeling is, like, oh, like, at least one school has accepted me. I now know. I know I can go. And then you know what Elena did when she went to college? I don't know how you... You went at it a little differently. But when Elena got to college, she went to Cornell, and, and she just buried herself for that first year, the first semester especially, because she wanted to prove she could be there, you know? Like, hmm. you know, she's a girl from a, a high school in Wyoming... And wanted to prove to herself that she could be there, and she would she end up like a, like a, I don't know, four o something, in her first semester, and and then she realized that she was killing herself and didn't have to, hmm. and and could back off a little bit. Well, so, she is a very intelligent person. She is, yeah. <laughs> Whereas when I got to college, I was so unprepared. I don't remember what GPA I got, but it was definitely not a 4.0 first well, semester. part of that was that you were at Guru, you know... No, I was very <laughs> unprepared by height. Genuinely, we, we like, put this, you is in not private me, schools this is not me didn't being really, modest. I was yeah. unprepared for college. On the other hand, you had deep meditation techniques. I did. Yeah. Which have served me well. I would say it's a decent trade-off. Whereas my lack of taking physics in high school, eh, it's all right. We'll have to tell you about Danielle's early education years. We took her quite off the beaten path. So um, I took myself off the beaten path. Yeah, indeed you did. And so let's come back into the family idea. Because our families give us so much kind of culture, if you will. A kind of a way of thinking about the world. And if we don't have, if our families aren't teaching us something, and they can't if they don't know it. Right? They can't teach something that exactly. they don't know. Exactly. And so we're, we're somehow just, we're handicapped by our own family culture. And we see that in the world so often. I just got to say, you know, that when you're, when you're trying to help people rise up from, from their place where they are, the, the ability of these people to think in a new way is, is handicapped by the families they grew up in. And you see that over and over and over again in, in people who are... I don't know if I like the word handicapped. I mean, it's just we all are who we are. We, You grew up with how you grew well, up. Well, I'm not using and, handicapped like... And you, I grew up how I grew up. And if I have children... Yeah, but I'm not using handicapped... Hold on. I'm not using handicapped like, like it's a disability. What I'm saying is you're handicapped like a horse that has to carry extra weight in a race. You've got this extra... You, there's things you don't know, and that's a that's a weight you have to carry into your life. That if we took that weight off of you, you would run faster. It's just it's just a, a, that that it's not the whole playing field isn't even out there. Some people no. are carrying a lot more weight than other people are. I Absolutely. guess is what I'm saying. Absolutely. And and the trouble is when you what we try to do is we try to give people who have that extra weight that they're carrying a, a hand up. And what happens is that we we don't change the weight. We we're just pulling them up, but the weight's still on their back. Who's we? What, what are you I don't know. About? Us as a people, as a nation, you know, we try to do oh. things. We try to provide education benefits. We try to um, provide you know unemployment benefits or welfare benefits if you if you don't have a job. And we we look at ways of improving people's lives, but we don't change the weight that they're carrying because. We're not thinking about it right. Whereas if we can figure out how to get people to think about life in a different kind of way, 
then they can climb the ladder easily, then just like we can, because you're not carrying as much weight. Jeez, so. well, I don't feel like anybody can climb the ladder easily. The ladder is hard, and we should acknowledge that. And yes, people have different amounts of weight to carry up that ladder. Well, let me start with this. I, I have a good friend named Chris Dunham, who is a great motivational speaker. I was on stage with him for 12 years, going around the country, um, and he often spoke right in front of me because he would get the audiences so fired up. You know, I just loved coming up on stage after he got done. Chris is from India and came to the United States, became a consultant to Fortune 100 companies. I mean, he's a phenomenal guy. And, and he would talk to the audiences that, you know, we were speaking to 15,000 people in these big arenas. And Chris would get up and go, you won the sperm lottery, all of you what? Americans. <laughs> Oh, because you're born in America. You're born in America. Yeah. So I mean, we talk about the weight to climb the it's ladder. It's a fantastic place to be able to do what you want to do. But I think Chris is missing this thing we're talking about, right? Because he's saying, look, you were born in America. You have none of the restrictions, none of the cultural restrictions that people have all over the world that keeps them from getting ahead. You have none of the, the, the country's restrictions that are there in terms of the kind of country you live in and the rules of the country and the culture that's there. Those restrictions don't exist here. In America, you have this land of opportunity, and it's true, you can do anything here. And he feels that way coming from India, right? Well, but, that is wonderful, but I don't think any of that is actually true. Well, that's what I'm, I'm saying. Glad that, I'm glad he feels that way as an immigrant. That's good. But that's what I'm saying, is because he feels that way as an immigrant. I think people who grow up here feel the cultural mores that we are attached to, and we feel what we're supposed to be doing. And well, what Chris we is trying to do weight. is trying to get people to recognize that everybody feels the weight, but the weight's heavier in, in much places. of the rest of the world. Yeah, for, yeah. Much totally. heavier than it is totally. on our heavily I mean, weighted people. I've been looking into entrepreneurship in Europe, and there just isn't much. I mean, it's extraordinary to me because I'm so, you know, like I work with emerging companies as a lawyer and I'm so like, I grew up with you starting companies and, and then we have this whole like American culture of entrepreneurship and sort of venerating the entrepreneur and, you know, starting a company when you're 20 is now like completely normal, which is awesome. Like that's an amazing thing about the U.S. and yeah. it just truly doesn't exist culturally in other places. Now, there are other countries that have, have done this. Like, Israel is actually really right. amazing. Right, Israel's amazing. Chile is actually really Chile amazing. Chile is amazing. And people have written books about these different countries and how they've done it. But it's not so much in Europe. And um, and it's just, I find, I find those cultural differences fascinating. Because it directly changes the economy of those countries. Just as our culture of entrepreneurship directly changes our economy. Oh, massively, massively. Not to mention... Changing the entire world by like inventing the internet and right. the iPhone and you right. know, things like that. And, so and so we, we got, are like going. I don't even know where we're going with all of this. Well, I wanted to take this someplace. Take it, I have take an it, idea to, where take I was going. To the place. And here's and clearly we're not going to get back to the numbers. No, today, we're coming to that. But next we'll week. get to it next week. But here's where I wanted to take this: is that you know if your family doesn't know how to do this investing thing, and most families don't, then. If you can think about breaking out of that, and everybody listening to this podcast by default is thinking about getting out of that and getting out of that un, that lack of knowledge, or you wouldn't be listening to this, you can, I think in a way, join another family. You can join a family that does know how to do this, that has a long tradition 
of doing this kind of stuff really, really stunningly successfully. And you can kind of think of it as like, I've got these uncles, right? Like second level uncles out there, maybe a, a, like an extended family grandfather who's willing to take me under his wing and teach me the critical things that he knows. And we get that from people like Uncle Ben Graham, <laughs> who wrote The Intelligent Investor in 1949, which is his distilled wisdom of 30 years of investing. And then we have Uncle Warren Buffett and Uncle Charlie Munger, who <laughs> have written extensively, right? Warren Buffett's letters to shareholders, there's 50 years of letters from your uncle telling you the distilled wisdom of what he's learned about investing. And then you've got books by lots of people who've written about Warren Buffett. I mean, I'm looking at a book right now by Howard Marks, who's a big fan of Buffett, who's a brilliant uh, guy who runs Oak Tree. Um, called The Most Important Things Illuminated. And it's it's been annotated or illuminated by jo Joel Greenblatt, who's another big Buffett fan and successful guy. And, and, and I read books by Guy Spear, who is another huge Buffett fan, and Manesh Pabrai, who's another huge... And these guys are Uncle Manesh and Uncle Guy and Uncle Phil. And we're out there with, <laughs> with books that are distilling down this wisdom that's been passed down for over 80 years. And you can join this family, you know, and you can have fireside chats. You just got to open up the book and read. And you can listen to this podcast as a way of having an extended family listening to that family go through the learning process, hmm. which is what we're doing. So that's where I'm going with this. Maybe that can help you by being part of another culture of great, great financial success and learn how that's done from these extended family uncles. That's an interesting way to think about it. And then, okay, to continue the metaphor, once I have that information in my head, once I am aware of it, then that automatically almost gets passed down to my kids, right? So Huge it goes from this right sort there. of imaginary family of the imaginary uncles, or what... I would think of as like the tradition of masters passing down the knowledge much more formally than the uncle version. Yeah. Um, but then it, either way, it comes into me and that goes down to the rest of my exactly. family. Exactly. And so you've changed not only your life, but everyone's lives. Everyone's lives down, you. your, down the family yeah. generations that are going to come. Just as you learned from me to go to a good college, I learned from my parents to go to college. They learn from their parents how important an education is. And it, that, that knowledge passes through in a very deep, profound way. And you just have to make a decision to join the family and really, on your own, just dig in and learn. And that's what we're trying to help you do. Yeah, you know, also, I'm just thinking about the family idea. I really didn't mean it in any negative way that there were expectations for me to go to a really good college. <laughs> I genuinely, like... I think that that's actually, I'm thinking about your thought that like, there's this family of uncles coming down and giving you the information. But if that is true, and there's no expectation on the other side, are you really going to stick with it? Great point. You know, like part of your family passing information is not just the information. It's like, hey, you're you've you're upholding the family here, like go do a good job. 
And it's like Tiger Mom Land. Well, but no, but I mean, I'm just saying like those are two sides of the same coin. And if you're missing one of the sides, or on the other hand, if you have expectations of something you have absolutely no way of achieving, that's not good either. That's just a recipe for failure. Well, so, wait a second. It, it, I'm going to turn that on its head and say that if you have expectations of having a good financial life, ultimately, right, to be freed up from financial worry, to have some kind of decent retirement and absolutely no way to achieve that, then that might drive you. The pain that is clearly in your future from a lack of knowledge, from a lack of family, from not having that culture of success and finances, that pain could be a driver for you. And it might drive you enough to really learn this stuff. Yeah, but you're assuming that there's a way to achieve it in that scenario. Whereas I was saying that expectations without any way to achieve them is where oh, you go insane right and become a total failure. Well, that's right? where you that's where you just give up. Yeah, right? that's that's what yeah. I mean. Yeah, or that's you horrible. That's where you your, go crazy. That's horrible. That would make you crazy. That's, that's a that's a that's an intelligent animal in a zoo. Right. That has desires that can't ever be fulfilled. So, you go crazy. If you have the information and the expectations and you put them together, then maybe you can make some money. Nirvana. <laughs> Nirvana. And you start slow and you'd be willing to dig the canyon. Dig the canyon. All right. We're going to come back and show some numbers next time about our lemonade stand. We're going to get into how do you, how does there come to be a multiple and what's the right multiple of earnings that, that you should use to figure out the value of this business and what is a minimal acceptable rate of return? What's that all about? Okay. Yeah. We'll get to that next And I've time. been thinking about how to structure those numbers in a more clear way because I was pretty confused. Okay. That'd be great. Time. Yeah. Come back with that. All right. So okay. until then, it's time to go play. Thanks, See ya. everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting all you got to do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion, and it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.